Well, I've been looking forward to uh, opening the Word of God with you this morning. I've been looking forward to it all week, in fact, um, uh, especially in light of the things we have before us this morning. Our task is to work our way through just two verses, but they are uh, rather profound, and I'm excited to look at them with you. We're in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13, uh, actually the last part of this lengthy section in 13 is uh, verses 10 to 21, which is about how we position ourselves before a holy God. Maybe you remember that from last time. We're talking about how we are to behave toward God. The section presents four areas then of, of Christian behavior, and we, we looked at uh, the first one in verses 10 to 14, and that was identifying with Christ, identifying with Christ. The next in the area of Christian behavior is what I would call sacrifice, sacrifice. And here now, verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and... Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, I want to just jump right into this. There's really so much here for us to consider. The phrase, through him, which begins verse 15. That would not normally come at the beginning of a Greek verse or a Greek sentence, but the writer puts it here in order to emphasize a contrast that he's been making throughout the entire letter or the entire book between Christ on the one hand and the Old Testament sacrificial system on the other. You know that full well. You remember we've spent a lot of time talking about this uh, contrast, and he brings it up here. God's people don't come to God through a sacrificial system anymore, period. They don't commune with him through through a fellowship meal or a or an offering, a meal offering rather, or a fellowship offering. They don't worship him through the agency of priests. Rather, they relate to God through the sacrificed in priesthood of Christ himself. Jesus brought us into the very throne room of God in order that we might commune with our Heavenly Father intimately and personally. God found Jesus' sacrifice of himself acceptable, and it paid for our uh, penalty of, for the penalty of death, our death, and it allowed us to stand justified before God. Jesus now sits at God's right hand, and he mediates for us as our high priest. <clears throat> now, at the same time, that precious truth of Christianity doesn't mean that We Christians have nothing to do with sacrifice. On the contrary, Christians sacrifice. That's right, they sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice is alive and well in the New Covenant. The the fact uh, is that the writer here emphasizes sacrifice as well as the New Testament, and he emphasizes sacrifice in a way that speaks of it as bringing fellowship and communion between God and his people on a plane much higher than the Old Testament saints could ever experience with all their sweet savor offerings. 
How is it possible that the Christian life has anything to do with sacrifice? Well, consider two facts from Hebrews. The first fact is that the writer talks about Christian devotion and loyalty in terms of partaking at a new covenant altar, which is Christ himself. We made this point last week when we said that Jesus' one-time sacrifice that propitiated the Father on our behalf was both a non-sweet savor offering and a sweet savor offering, right? He was sacrificed outside the camp, which is where the bodies of the non-sweet savor offering animals were discarded and burned, signifying that fellowship with God had been restored through the violent death of a perfect substitute. Jesus, however, is also our sweet savor offering because in reconciling us to God through his blood, he instantly established our communion with God the Father. Christians then partake of the sacrifice of Christ. We eat his body and drink his blood. And that's not just a, just a figure for the Lord's Supper by any means. It's language befitting a life of surrender to Christ. Our intimate communion with God revolves around Christ's sacrifice. The second fact, and the emphasis really of our passage today, is that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf allows us to live sacrificially before God. Did you realize that the Christian life is a life of sacrifice? Is it true of you? Do you live sacrificially or do you live comfortably? Would you even characterize your Christian walk in terms of a sacrifice? Many Christians would not. Now, why would I say that? Well, in the first place, the only time that Christians use the word sacrifice is when they want to express that they are enduring a hardship for a noble cause. Listen, what I'm doing for you is a real sacrifice, so don't give me a hard time. Something along those lines. In the second place, American Christianity has been influenced by the prosperity gospel, by and large, and it sees things like protection and security and financial stability and a stress-free life as positive indications that God is blessing them. So sacrifice is really not something that's on their radar. And in the third place, many churchgoers have skewed have a skewed view of sanctification, thinking that it's really not their responsibility, but that Jesus carries them along in their spiritual walk, and, and he does this all, all while the Holy Spirit is maturing us. And he does that without us even knowing it. So they're much like patients lying on the operating table facing major surgery, and just before the anesthesiologist puts the patient under, the doctor says to him, Now, John, you're about to have a nice nap while we take care of you. So sweet, dream, sweet dreams. And, oh, John, by the way, don't worry. You won't feel a thing. A good portion of Christianity today is under the impression that believers are not responsible for maturing. God does it all. They sit by passively 
And they enjoy the ride while God miraculously and mystically infuses them with biblical wisdom and maturity. And they don't feel a thing. They don't even crack the Bible open. It's one of the biggest lies that Satan propagates in the church. And not just from, from pulpits, but from choir lofts and from men's and women's ministry groups from youth ministry groups, such as they are, and in Sunday school and church Bible studies and so on. But it couldn't be farther from the truth. It certainly doesn't square with the metaphors that the New Testament uses to characterize our faith. Think about that. We've talked about a few of them already. It likens the faith to, to, a, spiritually, to a spiritual military service, to an army, and we're soldiers who fight the good fight. Or it's a great race, and we're top Olympic athletes, and we're there to run, and run to win. Paul speaks like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know the passage well. Run in such a way that you may win. Remember, he says, exercise self-control in all things. Do it to receive an imperishable wreath. Don't run aimlessly. He even explains that he himself disciplines his body and makes it his slave. By the way, that doesn't really speak to many people in churches today. They shy, first of all, they shy away from discipline anyway. And the kind of spirit or the kind of spiritual regimen that the Bible would, uh, would have us to follow, or any kind of routine of prayer and regular Bible study, or worship and witness, practicing our spiritual gifts. But aside from all of that, there's also something lost in this translation, discipline. A more literal translation is to strike someone in the face, specifically in the cheek, just under the eye. You would never think of discipline in those terms, beating yourself up. What Paul's essentially saying is that he gives his body a black eye. He beats it black and blue if he has to in order to keep it under submission to his will. That's discipline, and it's very foreign today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he calls the faith, as you know, a good fight, and he compares living it to having fought. He, his encouraging words to Timothy are, are these, fight the good fight of faith yourself, Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life. Who speaks that way today? Most just sit and wait for heaven to come, right? They, they don't take hold of it. No one today is aggressively reaching to make kingdom life one's own now, as we all should. Rather, they are just kind of coasting. They're not even enduring sufferings and trials the way they should. Yet Paul told the churches in Lystra and Derby, if you remember, though... <clears throat> through, many trial, uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So I would say, no, most Christians don't even think about sacrifice at all, much less sacrifice characterizing their relationship with Christ. Concept is lost in Christianity today. If, if you've thought about it yourself at all, well then, you're doing better than most. But maybe you're wondering what all... All the sacrifices are that we're to continually offer to God. Is there a list somewhere in the New Testament? 
you happen to be one of the more conscientious Christians, and you want to be offering your sacrifices to the Lord on a continual basis, as it says in verse 15. Well, let me just say that your line of thinking, if that's true, if that's really what you desire, your line of thinking is, is going in the direction of individual sacrificial acts. Let's call them ministries of God or for God. And that's not wrong at all. It's not wrong by any means to think about witnessing to unbelievers or setting up the baptistry for the pastor's baptismal service or maybe exercising a spiritual gift of helps at a friend's house by cutting down a rotten tree that is leaning over his uh, driveway and posing a threat, or reading a Bible story to your grandkids, or coming on the Lord's Day to worship God with the body. All of those are indeed offerings. They are our sacrifices that we make in Christ to God. Yes and amen to all of them. But we shouldn't think of these particular activities as the fullest way to continually offer sacrifice. Now listen very carefully because this is a component that I think is, um, is not well understood and I want to make sure we understand it well. While it is true and right to think of our activities as being sacrifices to God, spe specifically executed for the sake of of the gospel or for a church member or other Christians or the church itself, it would be quite inaccurate to think that the Christian life is made up simply of a series of sacrificial activities. And you can be sure that the writer is not thinking particularly of a series of righteous works that fill our lives when he calls us to continually offer, through Christ, a sacrifice. See, this idea falls far short of what I think he's really driving at. And besides, what are those other times in our lives, the periods between the righteous works, when we're not engaged in some specific ministry? Are we at that point, or in those points in time, not living sacrificially? Christians sacrifice. We made that point already. They sacrifice. Let me go on to say that Christians sacrifice themselves. Themselves. Here's where I want you to revise your thinking. I want you to follow closely with what I have to say. The Bible calls us redeemed worshipers, right? That's what we are. We are redeemed worshipers. God created human beings in the image of, of himself. He recreates people who become Christians in the image of his dear son. If that's the case, then there is never an instance in our entire lives when we are not a worshiper, a redeemed worshiper. That's who we are. We're always that. When you sleep, when you're awake, when you're walking, when you're sitting, you are always a redeemed worshiper. That is what you are. Cannot change that. If we are by nature worshipers made acceptable in God's sight by the work of Christ alone, then it's also true that there is never a time in our lives when we are not worshiping 
People are always worshiping something. They were designed to worship God, but we know they don't if they're not believers. True believers worship God, but there are times, of course, when the object of their affection changes, and that's when they sin. But we are always worshiping, and we want to always be worshiping the Lord, not just on Sundays either, between the Sundays. And if you concede to that, then you will concede to this. Our entire lives are one grand and continual sacrifice to the Lord. That's right. It's not just what we do, it's what we are, what we represent all the time. I'm not making this up. This is the teaching that and the tenor of the New Testament. Listen to, to the way it describes our worship. We who are worshipers. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Ephesians 6. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Ephesians 5.20, always give thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Are you getting the impression that a continual devotion should characterize our consciousness, right? Continual devotion characterizes our consciousness, whether or not we're engaged in some specific activity of ministry. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is uh, important for our study at this point. Paul states that our bodies, as you might remember this verse, he states that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the natural consequence of that fact is that our whole lives, then, are to glorify God. This is how he puts it. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That's what we are. Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price, therefore... Glorify God in your body. That's what we're to do. Your whole life, your whole being is all about glorifying God. That has got to be continually in the conscious part of your brain. The way the writer of Hebrews captures all of this all-encompassing idea of continually offering up our very selves as a sacrifice to God is with a figure of speech that grammarians call merism. Merism. What is merism? Well, this is a figure of speech that combines two contrasting parts of a whole in order to refer to the whole. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I've never used that before. Oh, you use it all the time. For example, I search high and low. High and low means that we search everywhere. High and low are the two extremes of what we search. So every other place in between the high and the low 
is included. We say that we look at something from beginning to end. We mean the entire thing. If I search day and night, I mean the entire 24-hour period. From the rising of the sun to its setting means an entire 24-hour period. In Psalm 139, verse 2, the psalmist says to God, You know when I sit and when I rise up. Which means that God knows everything this person does from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to bed. In our verse, the writer uses merism. And he says that we are to continually offer through Christ a sacrifice from the fruit of our lips and, verse 16, by doing good. Right? Fruit of our lips and doing good. I might paraphrase that as in word and deed. Now, the, uh, the idea of word and deed as, uh, as two opposites that refer to a whole is often used throughout the New Testament. It's used to encompass the totality, in fact, of the activity of a person. In 1 John 3.18, word and deed actually occur as opposites. Let us not love with word or the tongue, but in deed. In this case, word can be empty. Words can be meaningless. We need to back up our words by our actions. That's what John means. So in our verse, the writer uses lips and doing good to refer to the whole entire person. His entire life is expressed in word and deed. What else is there? So we have in these two verses a definition of a continual offering of ourselves. That's what you really have to get get from this passage. You need to understand the writer is talking about offering ourselves to God continually. A continual offering of ourselves. Now there are, are of course, individual activities that are involved here, as we said. We don't deny that. There is quite a bit in the New Testament that speaks to the ministry of our words, for example. We can call it maybe an oral ministry. That sounds a lot like an advert for a Christian dentist. But I'm talking about ministering to others by our words and those times being our offerings to God. And they would certainly be proclamation, proclaiming the gospel. Also, biblical counseling is all about ministering the word to hurting souls. We're also commanded to encourage others with the truth. So important is that kind of word that God has actually given the gift of encouragement to some people. And we mustn't underestimate the healing power of God's truth spoken. Proverbs 25. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word fitly spoken. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Now we intercede and we petition God on behalf of others. That is an oral ministry. That is an offering of the mouth, the fruit of lips. Let's not forget Bible teaching, 
preaching. Really, all our language is to be biblical. Biblical language is language that accords with biblical truth. It is for the best interest of the hearer, and it brings glory to God all at the same time. Paul calls for our words to be seasoned with salt, gracious, timely, spoken in love. I would say that, generally speaking, the writer calls us to offer our words to God as a fitting offering. But his more specific meaning of fruit of lips is in the context of praise, which is also a verbal ministry or offering. Sacrifice of praise is what the writer defines as the fruit of lips that give thanks to God in verse 15. That's what he says, that give thanks to God. So we know that this is a clear reference to praising the Lord. That is private praise that we give the Lord in our lives through the week and public praise in the assembly that we give on the Lord's Day. I don't know if you've ever wondered why we actually have time in our worship services for you to praise the Lord publicly. But this verse is the rationale for that. It was an integral part of Israel's worship, to be sure. The psalmist attests that fact. And you can read in First and Second Chronicles just how detailed David was in instituting Levites to praise the Lord in the assembly, just to praise. There were groups of Levites that were cued to praise the Lord in the midst of the assembly. Now this verbal activity, biblical language in general, and praising God in specific, as I say, are specific verbal activities. They are examples of sacrifices, of offerings in the area of words, right? That's easy enough. But at the same time, let's understand that while our mouths form the words, our hearts are what generate them. Words are nothing more than our thoughts in verbal form. And we all know that our thoughts are born in our hearts. The Bible doesn't deny or diminish the significance of this when it commands us to praise God, both in our private lives and in the assembly. Private and public praise is every believer's responsibility. But it's still very much an act of, wor of our worship, which is why it's called a sacrifice. And it must come from the heart. Philip Edgecombe Hughes writes in his commentary, and he's correct here, he says, the gratitude, which is the motive force of the whole life of a Christian, cannot fail to burst from his lips. Praise is like Giving, both are commanded, but we're to practice both with all sincerity from the heart and with joy, right? Now, with all those verbal aspects of the faith that we find in command form and others in principle form that, that, we, that we have before us in the word, we run the risk of practicing them with hypocrisy. They can all become merely empty ritual if we're not careful, one after the other. A whole string of them. You may remember the incident where Jesus excoriates the religious leaders in Matthew 15 for this very thing. He accuses them first of nullifying the word of God with their own traditions, man-made traditions, and then he calls them hypocrites. Here's what he says. And by this, 
you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They pay lip service. Fruit of lips, very empty. So once again, while there are specific practices of the faith that we do in word, encouraging one another, singing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs to one another, rebuking one another when necessary, speaking the truth and love to one another, and speaking truth that fits the need of the moment that might benefit those who hear. And of course, in our particular text, praising God publicly and privately in the assembly, it's vital, beloved, for us to remember that God looks at the motive behind the words. They must be backed by a genuine, heartfelt devotion and faith to God. What I'm saying is that when the writer zeroes in on a sacrifice of praise, he's talking not so much about the actual act of private or public praise as he is of the ongoing and ever-present heartfelt devotion to God that we express in the form of verbal praise. And while outward, verbal acts of praise are, are given only from time to time, that heartfelt devotion behind, behind them is always there. And this is the point. It's continual. Whether it's expressed in so many in so many instances during the week or not, it should be continual. It's burning always in our hearts. I'll give you an example from the apostles who saw beyond the form to the motive behind it, whose rejoicing and praise to God was indeed heartfelt and sincere, and who demonstrated a continual attitude of praise a posture of thanksgiving and gratitude that was always before them and always ready to be expressed verbally as they had occasion. It was never interrupted by anything in life, not even persecution. So in Luke, I'm sorry, Luke rather records in Acts chapter 4, verse 41, that the Sanhedrin flogged Peter and John for preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. It reads, They went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now they were able to do that because their posture, their attitude, their disposition toward God was already right. They had grateful hearts already. And flogging was simply the context in which that devotion could be expressed. How about Paul? Luke records in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, that Paul and Silas stood in a Philippian jail, bloody and beaten, and about midnight were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them as with Peter and John, Paul and Silas, continually cultivated an attitude of devotion and gratitude and thanksgiving that was ever before them and could not be doused, not even by persecution. 
Beat them if you will, doesn't matter. You cannot beat out of them their devotion to Christ. Offering up through Christ our sacrifice of praise is an indication of a continual attitude of thanksgiving to God. Should be there all the time. A deep-seated love and joy and devotion that cannot be doused by anything, any circumstance in life. Now, let me move on from one end of the spectrum, words, one end of the spectrum of life to another, to the other end, from righteous words to righteous works, as we try to get our arms around the writer's idea of a life of continual devotion to God. Read in verse 16, Hebrews 13, verse 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. Now, just like sacred verbal practices of the faith, we would be right in thinking that there is also godly behavior, godly works, works of righteousness, some of which are specifically ecclesiastical, that is, Lord Day activities, like communal worship, giving of our offerings, cultic shouts of amen, practicing our spiritual gifts, just to name a few. There are also righteous works that we do primarily outside of our assemblies, like evangelizing unbelievers in the marketplace and missionary work, both foreign and domestic, spending time restoring a sinning brother, maybe, or praying with somebody as the need dictates, disciplining, parenting, working at our vocations. These are all works of righteousness, works that Christians do in the name of Christ. Now, the New Testament communicates to us the importance of doing good to others and also sharing God's benefits with those in the body who are in need. This typified, actually, the early church. Remember in Acts 2, uh, verses 44 to 45, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with, sharing them all as anyone might have need. Paul gives his command in Romans 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality, more offerings, more sacrifices in, in, in works. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and, in, and still ministering to the saints more offerings, more sacrifices in the form of works, righteous works. Hebrews 10.32, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by becoming sharers with those who were mistreated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, more sacrifice in the form of works, righteous works. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. Doing good, sharing with others, ministering to people, works of righteousness. Now, having said that, we need to recognize that these works of righteousness that God has defined in his word and designated for us uh, to do, also run the risk in our lives of being empty and hypocritical. Such acts of righteousness 
parenting, being a godly spouse, caring for our parents in their old age, caring for widows, being good stewards with our money, are supposed to be outward, visible, tangible expressions of a heartfelt devotion and love to God, just as our words are. Hold your place here in Hebrews 13 and find your way back over to 2 Corinthians 8. This is a, a perfect example of what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 8 shows us the form or expression that we call giving, uh, the right and uh, the, the right and proper attitude of love that must be behind such a form of giving, and it also teaches us that the only that only those who have a love relationship with God and are right with Him can be so motivated to give this way. It's such a perfect biblical illustration of what we're seeing from Hebrews thirteen fifteen. So let me show you. Or, or verse 16, rather. So let me show you. Uh, we read 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5, regarding the Macedonians' generosity toward Paul. It begins, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this the saints, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. All right. It's a wonderful passage. Paul mentions how the Macedonians gave generously to the saints of Jerusalem. This was a collection Paul was taking, going around to the churches, taking up money so that he could bring it to the saints in Jerusalem. Now, like those instances that Peter and John faced with the Sanhedrin and Paul and Silas faced in the Philippian jail, the Macedonians had faced their own difficulties. Paul mentions in verse 2 their great ordeal of affliction. What is that? Well, the province of Macedonia was plundered by the Roman officials and also by commerce. So the Macedonians were pretty poor. But it was out of a deep poverty that they actually gave generously. Paul refers to the wealth of the liberality. <clears throat> so we see right away that they faced hardship. But that hardship could not douse their devotion to the Lord, and so they gave generously. And Paul says here, beyond their ability, after begging Paul strenuously to have the opportunity to give. Now, how do we figure this? Well, verse 5 provides the answer. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Did you see that? The order is very important here. Before they gave themselves to Paul and the saints in Jerusalem in service with funds, they gave themselves to the Lord. That is, that they were devoted Christians who loved Christ so much, they looked for tangible opportunities to show it. Giving was just 
a means through which they would express their utter and continual devotion to God, their offering, their sacrificial attitude. Paul notes back in verse 2 that they gave out of the abundance of joy. That deep-seated devotion and surrender to God produces an abundance of joy that flavors their tangible service. There's no hint here of empty ritual or, on, or, or going through the motions of giving for reputation's sake. There's no hint of hypocrisy here on the part of the Macedonians. They had first given themselves to God. Their entire life belonged to him, and they knew it. They are a great example of loving God first so that they might love their neighbors as they ought. We find the same principle working in the area of parenting in Deuteronomy 6. It's all over the Bible. Moses commands Hebrew parents in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6 to train their children in the law of God, which Moses had just given them. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. That's the command. But he prefaces that command with verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Again, the order is important. Before they venture out in the important and sacred business of instructing their children in the law of God, they must first love it, study it, know it, and live it out in their own lives. We come back to Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, hopefully with a better understanding of it now. The writer speaks of the importance of a continual, lifelong sacrifice of mind and soul and heart to the Lord that becomes evident in both our speech and our behavior. Paul commands the same in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Even if bodies here, or by bodies, Paul meant our physical lifestyle, there is no question that he has in mind a disposition of loyalty, a posture of surrender. How do we know that? Well, because he continues on in verse 2 to speak of how to cultivate this godly lifestyle and that is by the renewing of our minds. The mind is not the brain. The mind is the heart. And the heart is the real you, that place that only you and God know about. We can't see. We can only see the shell. But the real you is there. It's the heart. Paul says, make sure that you are surrendering to the Lord both in mind and body. Peter also references this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices here refer to all those outward expressions of or forms of worship that we mentioned already, both in word and deed. But notice what makes them acceptable to God 
is that they come from a spiritual house. That's what you are. From a holy priesthood. Again, that's priesthood of all believers. That's who you are. That's what you are. Those are metaphors of what we are. We offer what we offer the Lord because of what we are. So Christians sacrifice, and Christians sacrifice themselves. And finally, I would say that Christian sacrifice is what pleases God. The writer tells us that with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And this proves what we've been arguing all the more. God is never pleased with empty ritual. Saul learned that the hard way. Samuel told him to obey is better than sacrifice. Do you remember? In other words, <clears throat> the heart that is surrendered to God is what God delights in, not some act of going through the motions, some kind of ritual, some kind of ceremony, as if we're tying up loose ends or, or jumping through spiritual hoops. Oh, no. As we come down to the home stretch here, I, I want to make one last attempt to impress you with the continual surrender of ourselves to God. And I want to use another idea to do it. We mentioned already how the New Testament characterizes the faith as arduous fighting and running. <clears throat> A military service. Well, there is another way that it characterizes the faith. And, it's, and it is as something costly. Costly. I love this concept. It's an easy transition, of course, to go from military service or fighting to a life that's costly because these concepts are related. If we are meant to think of the faith as a military service, well, then I would say it would have to be, have to be the Marine Corps because that is a sacrificial unit. They're the first to go. Marines especially know the cost of fighting for their country. Living the Christian life is also costly. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a second that it cost anything to be saved. Jesus himself paid that part for us. We couldn't possibly pay it. I mean, rather, that genuine faith presents itself as genuinely devoted and loyal to the Lord no matter the cost. They take up their cross daily. Believers offer their lives in service to Christ. And anything that we offer to God should always be costly to us. Remember David. David wanted the threshing floor. Uh, and... Uh, the owner was going to give it to him for free. David refused and said, I will buy it, for I will not offer the Lord anything that costs me nothing. That's what I'm talking about. Even when speaking of giving of our offerings on the Lord's Day, we know that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, and that the giver is enriched in everything for all liberality. If our giving is to be sacrificial and costly, how much more are our lives? Jesus tells 
those who want to follow him to count the cost of following him because he demands total surrender and allegiance. There's no riding the fence when following Christ. You, you cannot have one foot in heaven and the other one in the world. It just won't work. There's no harboring of any worldly possessions. Christ wants all of you. Total surrender from us. Another occasion he spoke of the he spoke to the same crowd on the same theme in different words. He said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Beloved, becoming a Christian means that one forfeits his life to the Lord for his purposes. Plain and simple. That's the gospel. We no longer live for ourselves, but for someone else. And that is first and foremost, our Lord. We follow his will, not anyone else's or our own. And we will surely have to deny ourselves for his sake. Christians throughout time have even lost their lives for Christ by dying for him. And if that is not our lot, well then we die to Christ figuratively by living our heart out for him. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us. We're grateful for the word that you have preserved down through the centuries that we might have it in our hands. And this special word from the writer to the Hebrews, Lord, we pray we would take it to heart. Pray that we would truly understand that the Lord wants our total devotion and that we need to cultivate an ever-growing and continual loyalty and surrender to our Lord in our hearts so that it will bleed out into our words and into our hands. We pray that we would so cultivate such a posture so that when the time comes for us to respond to whatever the world has to bring before us, we would respond out of a heart of devotion and therefore and thereby respond correctly and obediently and biblically. Father, we pray you would impress upon us this great truth from Hebrews 13, verses 15 to 16, for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.